And that's reported so you can say some crazy stuff. You might be able to edit it out. <laughs> we never want to be in that position where you need to edit something out. Right. I can tell you from experience, it doesn't always happen. <laughs> um, and the microphone is always hot. Right. Always hot. We're learning that. Okay, go on my hand. I'm sorry, Donnie. Welcome to the Barbershop Talk Stop, Minnesota. It is 7-11-20 here in the summer up here in Rochester, Minnesota. And we have Randy Brunt and Alita Baru here today on our show. So we are truly blessed. But as you can tell, I'm probably sweating, Andre, too, because we have Randy Brock here, a media legend, coming to our grassroots show. So, man, so, uh, yeah, yeah, but we're going to try. And I'm sure you're already looking at something like, wow, this is, you'll see that, okay. So, we are so appreciative of them coming as they are on the campaign trail. We're going to get in real quick with them on their campaigns and why they are running. But we want to thank you again for tuning in to Barbershop Talk South Minnesota. We are here in Rochester, Minnesota, and we are a voice of the voiceless with an African-American style, and we are not ashamed about that. So thank you for tuning in. We like to speak the issues to the voiceless or about the voiceless, and we like to put a positive spin on it. We're going through a lot, and we want to make sure that as we go through some of these things, and we've been doing this for two years now, we give a positive spin on what we can do better our community, not only the African-American community, the voiceless community, but all of our community. And we really believe in what Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. And that's what this is about. This is not just about African-Americans, but as we focus on the African-American voice and the uh, voiceless folks, this helps our full community. So that's what we're about here at Barbershop Talk South Minnesota. You're not missing something here. We have our new podcast going as well. So you'll be able to get this show on our podcast. We're starting this new thing as well. So yeah, we have a podcast. So as you drive to work or go on the bus or whatever, we'll, we'll have this feature ready uh, for uh, our show. So as we get into it, we started the segment called our shout out segment. Just to say some positive things about things going on in the community. And I just have a couple that I wanted to mention. One is the Rochester Community Initiative. I think that's the right uh, word. Got a call from them. They have a big event going on today at 2 p.m. with all of the candidates that, will, are, that are able to attend. But as I talked with them this week, and this is my first learning on what they do, young people, high school and, and college folks, all energized around this idea of change since the member of George Floyd. And I applaud them for getting together. That is, that is huge. And it speaks to the issue of change. Young folks want change. Everybody wants change, but I wanted to give a big shout out to the Rochester Community Initiative and their organization. And then, as you know, we have the, the director here, the social service engineer, Mr. Andre Crockett. Shout out to Andre Crockett and Lee Green for the mural we now have here at Barbershop Talk and here in Rochester, Minnesota, and all of South Minnesota, a mural um, that is representing George Floyd and all that we're trying to do in light of his murder. He had a great event, uh, KTTC, KAL, KIT, Post Bulletin. All those folks came out, a lot of folks came out to celebrate that. So thank you 
Andre for the vision of that. And certainly come by, uh, look at it. It is, it is. I want to use the word ominous when you just take a look at it and think about what went on with George Floyd. But big shout out to Andre. I don't know if you want to say any more about that, but thank you for, for doing that. Maybe your vision on that. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to, you know, um, like I said, to, to dedicate and to honor, you know, um, the impact that I felt when I went up to uh, Minneapolis. And I just believe that I had to. I had to do something. And I always said that on the headline, I added that making history and leaving our legacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that he le- he left a legacy for all of us to continue, that um, change is going to happen. Um, and and, th- and that's what I really want to convey the message is that change is going to happen and mm-hmm. that his diet was not in vain. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Andre. And for those that want to help out, we're doing a lot of stuff here at Barbershop Talk, South Minnesota Barbershop and Social Services. If you want to be a part of our change, and we've been doing this for two seasons now, going into our third season, our third year, come help us as we continue to go and grow here at Barbershop Top Minnesota. We've proven ourselves. We are diversity in action. And certainly we would love your support as we continue to grow and add things like the podcast and so on and so forth. But as we do, we get into our Keep It Real segment because we're the barbershop, right? I mean, the barbershop is a beauty shop. you got to keep it real. Yeah. Now, so uh, <laughs> our guests and politicians, uh, you don't have to chime in on this because we don't want to, you know, get you in trouble anyways. If you want to, fine. I only have a couple. One is Pat Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs, a half a billion dollars to play football. What do you all think about that? I mean, is that good? Uh, uh, some people say, well, the market demand that, demanded that this type of money came. What? Half a billion to throw a football. What do you think? My goodness. That's a tough question. First, I haven't heard that. Oh, yeah, and you heard that he was making a billion dollars. 503 million, um, I believe it is. Yeah. Well, my first response is good for him. <laughs> That's yeah. right. He got the money. Um, and he's become such an iconic quarterback for a number of reasons. Right. My goodness, is he good? He, he, he is good. There's no question about that. Uh, but man, when will this thing top out? In five years, it was a that thing right. made a billion dollars to, to play with a weather piece of. Yeah, well, if you want to be rich, Alita, yeah. what's your sport? Evolve. Uh, oh, see, you I, I, I have to say, I was at the University of North Carolina shortly after Michael Jordan left. And so, oh. and the, and the great Dean Smith was still there. Oh, and, you know, there. yes, yes. So, um, B-ball is my sport. I also grew up in Western North Dakota, where you know you you could barely put together a, 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 a football team, but you can probably get a second string for a B-ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, Mullins is an uh, incredible um, quarterback. But you know the one thing is, uh, Kaepernick deserves. Oh, that's another one. A leader brought it into barbershop. Uh-huh. I love it. Will he get a job? Uh, it could be Minnesota. It could be. Uh, I, I don't I, think so. I don't think they're gonna give him a job. I would want it. Right, right. You would think an owner would want to do it just to bring the publicity and sell tickets. Yeah, but they're not even doing that. Well, our next segment is the mask controversy, and obviously the mayor and the city council passed a first of all a citywide. Uh, a building mandate on masks, and they're now a, a citywide 
total uh, mass issue. Um, um, and my question is not about the controversy of mass, whether we can do it or not. Um, I really want to get into, if we can, and I think it's a bigger thing we're seeing in our uh, area and nation, the fact that in here in Rochester, you're going to see folks wearing masks. Travel 40 minutes that way to Owatonna, no different you're going to look at, look at, you're going to be looked at very crazy for wearing a mask. Um, and the political, uh, whatever around masks, and I'm, and then let me go a step further, how we're so divided. And it, it, it really seems to be a huge issue. And it, it, to me, it seems like we're, we're tearing apart our country. Um, and I continue to say we need leaders more than politicians. We've got to sew our fabric back together because it's so um, divided. It's, it's just it's just crazy. We have our, our president, I'll say boldly, who says coronavirus is nothing. And then that's who he's employed more or less. To say, no, this is crazy. We need to, you know, mask up and face. Um, what do you all think about that, particularly if you are here for one and you're going to be leading, if you will, if you're elected, of course, people who are divided in crazy, crazy ways. What do you all think about that? Number one, uh, we will not be able to open our schools mm -hmm. in the fall. Over 90% of people in Minnesota want the schools to reopen. Mm -hmm. Teachers are terrified. Mm -hmm. We can't restart our economy if we don't, um, uh, you know, get the virus under control. We cannot get it under control mm -hmm. unless there's absolute, you know, almost entire uh, compliance with masking. Mm -hmm. So it's essential if we're going to actually restart our economy. Yeah. But I think let us bring in the equity question here. Who, who are the frontline workers? Who are the home care workers? Who are the frontline workers in the stores? Who who is disproportionately being affected by COVID? You know, in terms of like saying everybody counts, Black Lives Matter. We have to mask up. But I think in terms of like bringing people together, you know, if we are, it, it's a question of safety for everybody, and if we're going to make our economy work. You know, we need to mask up. I'll just say that my opponent is saying that a town like Dover shouldn't have to have any masking policy. I did hear that. But, you know, Dover is not that far from the rest of us. It's the bedroom community of the Mayo Clinic. So, you know, it's 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 not helping our medical center be able to um, draw in people, you know, for care for the care they need mm -hmm. if people are not safe here. Mm -hmm. And I would say, to your point, too, that the cultural risk that we're seeing mm -hmm. is really worth watching. Mm -hmm. It's going to be critical to watch it. If you don't agree with it, I think you still need to see the rhetoric that's out there so that we can start, oh. under, so we can start to understand each other. Uh, it's very clear from medical professionals that wearing the mask does not protect me, but it protects you yeah. from me. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so that's, that's the reason right, why right. we're wearing it. And that means we're protecting uh, our families. You know, we're in our bubble. So at home, I'm not wearing a mask. Absolutely. My kids. But when I'm at the grocery store or the restaurant mm -hmm. or out anywhere, uh, and speaking to what Alita said, understanding that we've decided as a nation that our lowest paid are the most essential. Right. We've decided that grocery store workers are essential. We've decided that people that have to clean, mm -hmm. um, that have to work at fast food restaurants, that don't make enough. That hit a full time salary and don't make enough to get benefits, and that we excuse that. And that the nation initially said, No, that's okay, 
McDonald's specifically, you don't have to provide sick pay or health care. You get a tax on this because we weren't shutting down fast food right away. They stayed open the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. And in arguments we're seeing right now, the rhetoric surrounding not wearing a mask is getting dangerous. And and yes, and yes. It's foolish. And I'm not afraid to say that because we, I'm not an epidemiologist or a public infectious disease specialist or public health individual. Um, but I'll listen to them, mm-hmm. and they're the experts. And it's not a ruse for a conspiracy to control. Right. Right. We want to be back to normal. Right. And we want to be back to normal as quickly as we can. Normal will never happen. True that. True that. But yeah, yeah. I and it's just it's it, to me it's really scary how the right. I mean, we've talked about it, uh, but now and hopefully leadership will shift locally, nationally. Uh, whatever your political position is, to give us leadership and move us back together. Because, like you said, it's starting to get dangerous. Some um, people are laughed at and, and you're joking on if they're wearing masks and then if they're not. So I thought I would, 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 would leave with the, or bring that question out because I think um, this this is some Cold War, Civil War, I don't want to say Civil War, but definitely crazy underpinning. Country we need leaders to really uh, pull us back together. Well, again, thank you for tuning in to Barbershop Talk. We have Randy Brock here running for 26B representative and Alita Baru running for Senate 26. And so we're very happy to have them here today. Um, they are running against incumbents. And so we definitely wanted to have them here to, to figure out hey, are times changing in the 26th district area? And so uh, hopefully they can give us their uh, thoughts on why you should vote for them. So as we do opening statements, why should vote people vote for you as opposed to um, your opponent? And I must say this, we have invited their opponents to show that we are non-partisan in that way. But again, why should people uh, vote for you instead of the incumbent? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Well, you just talked about the importance of science and epidemiology in guiding our decisions. I'd like to say that I'm a doctor, and I'm also trained in epidemiology, and I have a a master's in public health. And I think that right now in this moment, we need science to guide us in terms of the decisions we're making about how we keep our our state safe and guide us towards being able to restore our economy and get our children educated. Ms. Brewer, did you just say you were a doctor? Yes, I am. I am uh, a, I a physician and I am a geriatrician. I was a hospitalist. I, I at the did Mayo not Clinic know that. I, hmm. you know, just well, Dr. Baruch, I would have responded to your emails a lot more if I knew you were. Okay, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so so in this pandemic, you know, we have had a, a physician in the Minnesota Senate who's been on Fox News talking about the fact that this is just not a big deal. It's just like the 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 flu. And that the death rates, you know, now we're uh, getting, marching towards 135,000 deaths or something like that. Uh, we're inflated. We need science to guide us, you know. And I think I'm the right person. But just to say, in this moment as well, I have um, 40 years of working on racial justice issues. Um, I have been, and I think in this city which um, it was just came out in the last month that we have the largest racial poverty gap of any city in the U.S. of our size. 
you know, this is our future. If we are not addressing these profound gaps in, in racial equity, um, we're not going to be able to have the creative you know, talents to solve the problems that we're facing in this society. So just to say, you know, I have, um, I started my racial justice work in the 70s, you know, around the question of apartheid in South Africa. But then I also, you know, uh, the whole question of police murders in New York City and the plan organizing and marching in Connecticut in the 1980s. Um, I, that was really where I understood that, you know, the, the depth of the problems of how race is keeping us divided and keeping us from being able to have the kind of profound unity around the issues that working people need to have unity around if we're going to make sure everybody has the things they need, whether it's affordable housing, healthcare that everybody can afford, paid family medical leave, fully funded childcare. You know, so these are the issues that um, I have been working around, but also in this community over the last six to seven years, uh, I've been really active and, and Donovan, this is when I first reached out to you around because of your work with the, um, the Council for Black Minnesotans around restoring the vote. I mean, right. this is a really critical thing that we have people who are out in our community who are have parole up to 40 years and can't, and are disenfranchised. Right. Um, you know, when I've been out door knocking, people feel like they've been tossed away, that they don't count anymore in our society, and we need to bring people back in and make sure that people have their rights restored. So I've been fighting around that, you know, um, driver's license for undocumented, and then also there have been all these uh, false accusations of fraud against our Somali community, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've spoken out about and been at the Capitol and done press conferences around. So, um, you know, these are some of the issues that um, I've worked around. I've also been, the last five or six years, working very hard to uh, open up our public health care program called Minnesota Care to everyone who can't afford to actually access their care. Mm -hmm. Something like 30 40% of people who have employer-based insurance mm -hmm. don't use it because they can't afford their deductibles and co-pays. Mm -hmm. We ought to have um, people be able to buy in our own homegrown Minnesota care program, and that's something I've been fighting around for five or six years. So, you know, I've, I've spent so much time at the Capitol. I see that um, it's no point in lobbying anymore to close ears. Uh, you know, I've been working with our community. It's time to go in there and take the votes. That's why I'm running for the Minnesota Senate. Right. All right. Yeah, I've lived here for eight years. I grew up in Central Minnesota, town about 25 years so Moved to Colorado, wanted to get away from home. You know, we always have that feeling when you're 18 years old that you just got to get out. So I lived in Denver for five years and got my first job in Amarillo, Texas. I lived in the panhandle of Texas for three and a half years and then came back home. My wife says the kids from Minnesota always try to come back home. I think she's right. <laughs> I love it here. Uh, when I left my previous career, it wasn't because I hated that job. It was because it was time I felt for a change. Mm -hmm. I've been doing that for a long time. and uh, But I didn't want to leave this state. I love Rochester. I love the area. I love our geology, the people, the weather. Uh, even in February, I start to twitch a little bit at it, but I do. Um, <laughs> I love to go for a drive down to Caledonia and go through our small town. Right, and nice. I've gotten to know a lot of people here. 
Um, I'm an outdoor person. I hunt, I fish. And I can do that within 20 minutes of my house. Mm -hmm. But also what I've seen as I've tried to, to grow as a person and see my kids grow up uh, and been a part of our schools and uh, people around here, I felt that I've had an opportunity and a bit of an obligation to do what I'm doing now. And it was a terrifying week for me. Uh, my kids, my wife helped me make that decision, but I was spending a lot of time getting frustrated at the status quo and how this current crisis, which started out as just a pandemic, was being handled and policies and misuse or of, of data as seen by some who would say, this isn't a thing, it's just a cold, or it's just a flu. And then we're going back to March, right. uh, when all this was starting to unfold. And I didn't make the decision to run until now. And um, then when George Floyd was murdered, we had a boil over, no doubt, of no everything. Doubt. So the pandemic was the initial burner that was causing that boil over, and then his murder happened, and it was horrifying. It was, it was a, yeah. And then I would also, I, I'm, I care deeply about people. Mm -hmm. I like to, I want to use my strength mm -hmm. to affect policy. Yeah. I am an empath. And I've learned finally to become an empath that doesn't let someone else's emotions dominate mine. But I want to learn how somebody else is functioning, what makes their, their life get, what are their struggles, mm -hmm. how is somebody who has to work a minimum wage job able to come with health care? Uh, they're facing something mm -hmm. the same as we are. How are we looking inward and starting to realize that, you know what, if I'm able to work from home, that in itself. No matter who I am, that's quite a privilege. Right, right. And there are a lot of people who aren't. Mm -hmm. The need for health care that serves all, mm -hmm. the need for our kids now, the next big thing. Right now, everyone's fighting about fast. We're starting to see the fight now move into education. Right. And that's where it's coming now. Mark, what is going to happen? Do our schools have the funding they need? Health care, education, and then what has become, you know, almost third or fourth chair for what's going on now are still critical things like affordable housing. Right. How are we serving our community fairly? How are we not segregating our community through affordable housing? Mm -hmm. Studies that are coming out now that are proving the assessment values are higher for black homeowners than they are for white. Right. So all of these issues that I look at and I just I cringe and I scream and I want to help and I feel like the only thing that I can do now it works with that policy. Right. So that's what I'm, wow. I'm facing right now, uh, in my own view, uh, a job interview. And it's not about my opponent. It's time to go what I can do as a policy right. Wow. Can you tell us Randy Bragg? I mean, that's Randy Bragg. I was in that book. I know, I know. Look, I was like, should I ask for an autograph? Or not? <laughs> <laughs> Randy Bragg, man. Yeah. Randy Bragg, man. So they think, you know, your job is easy. They say, you know, no, 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 really, because they say, you know, you know, meteorology, you know, they can't get it wrong. More than half of the time. Uh -uh. You still get paid. Yeah, that's they right. They don't get paid. I had to add that in because they, they say, you know, right. we're going to talk to them about that. Well, with that said, if I can pause the mic for just a few more seconds, <laughs> just a little bit longer. That is a, that's a critical issue that we're facing right now in the national dialogue is science. Oh, yeah? And that science isn't about coming up with the right answer right away. Mm -hmm. Science is about first saying in the scientific method, how am I wrong? But this is what I think is right. 
and we test that and we prove it. And we have come now through these steps where we learn about this virus and how it works and that wearing a mask keeps other people sick. Right. And we're still fighting about that because we think, well, they were wrong. They were wrong. So this whole thing is a sham. And no one believes. Sometimes the weather forecast was wrong too. We called for a foot of snow. It might still snow, but it would be an hour (laughs) south of us. We we try to get it right. I know that um, the Minnesota Department of Health, they allocated some dollars for um, COVID-19 for um, diverse media and also for, you know, for testing. And none of that money really got allocated down to South South Minnesota, down here, right? I mean, we applied to some other ones, but nobody down here really got that money. And so what I'm afraid of is that not, I think when, when they pass the, you know, or the requirement for masks, some of the kids and the clientele that I work with didn't even know. Right. So I'm afraid that sometimes when we um, implement things like that, we tend to sometimes forget about the marginalized, don't always perhaps um, read the Post Bulletin, Med City, KTTC and stuff. So we really have to find, how do we really find creative ways to, um, to get the information to them because they're being affected, they're being affected the most, right? Um, and I think they need to really be educated, right? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, I mean, uh, it came out, so sometimes uh, when, when the corona first came out, African Americans thought it was a white man, a white person disease. Mm-hmm. They didn't think that they can they can catch it. And so that's why you see a lot of them, you know, caught it and, you know, died from it, had complications and stuff from it. And so you can really see those disparities. And it's hard for um, African Americans to believe in science because what science has done to us mm-hmm. in the past. And so I think that a lot, of, even in our community here, that sometimes they're having like mayo, Umstead and stuff is great, but they don't understand that the history behind why we're afraid to go to the hospitals. So by the time we even get to the hospitals, you know, that Corona has already did so much damage. And so that's why you see, you know, a massive outbreak. So with that being said, you know, um, you're being a, a doctor. How do we run it? How do we start getting those messages to those who are um, afraid of science? Andre, that's a really profound question. And uh, I was actually, when you were talking, wanted to throw it back to you and, and saying, what what are the um, you know mechanisms by which we can communicate? I think the the um, churches are really an important um, point of communication. I think of uh, uh, Dr. Brewer, or Princess Brewer, who has done amazing work talking about, you know, the disparities around um, COVID and why people, why African American people and people of color have been more susceptible. It's also, it's also a question of, of the environmental exposures that people face, you know, and as well the historic trauma of, you know, that people carry in them and predispose them to chronic illness, you know. But I think the, the churches are probably one of our best avenues to be able to communicate in communities of color where there is this um, profound suspicion of, of, uh, uh, of the med- medical profession given the history of like the Tuskegee experiment yeah. and, and, and uh, you know, the historic kind of disparities in health is, yeah. I, 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 I think this is our, probably our best way, but I'm also gonna punt it back to you and ask, 
how can we also get our message out to people, not only about this disease, for me as a physician and, and, and Randy who believes in science, but also, you know, about the mechanism we were talking earlier um, before the show started about how can we get people to understand their ability and their power to actually make the change that can bring, you know, a material improvement to their lives, you know, whether it's edu education, funding, housing, you know, healthcare access. So, New York Times just dug into a bunch of information from the CDC. They found from the CDC that they, they had to file a Freedom of Information Act of, of student information. From that, you can zoom into Olmstead County to get this information for millions of pages. And we found that if you are Black in Olmstead County, you are four times more likely to contract coronavirus than if you are white. Which is an unreasonable, in unreasonable might not be the wrong word, but it's, it's terrifying to see that disparity. Mm -hmm. And then we have to figure out why. So, where are the systemic issues that are making something like that happen? Where are these problems occurring? One of them is probably in the messaging and how that's right. getting out. And one of the critical things that we're looking at now or that we need to address is when you're communicating any sort of scientific information, you have to do that compassionately and you have to do that so it's understandable. All of us have specialties in the world of science, but we have to figure out how to bring that message very reasonably. And when you start to see absolutes coming from, this is, please, this is not a criticism of physicians or doctors, but I do believe that, uh, you know, there was a German physician who found that asymptomatic transmission was very problematic right at the onset. There was a competing study that tried to undermine that. Mm -hmm. And then WHO, Abu Bakar, you know, uh, Abu Mosque in uh, Broadway, he disseminated information to his community as a leader within the Somali community. So I think it's really about who is the messenger and who is the trusted messenger. That's why I come back to Le Prince's Brewer, Dr. Le Prince's Brewer, as being a really important messenger in the community here about this. And and she's spoken very powerfully, you know, I know on Facebook, you know, about this. But I you know, I think that's that's the other key question. And um you know, how do we make sure that all of the communities the most affected are getting this message, you know? I um to, to another question in, in lieu of that, it, it is my opinion. Um, three weeks ago, there was a special session on police form, um, COVID nineteen and impacts disparities and a couple of the issues. I believe the Madin bill it fell short. Yep. But, um, now the governor has um, uh, he said a special session will be starting Monday. Um, and as we've talked with folks, the Democrats did their thing in the House. Send it over to the Senate. Uh, they didn't want to do it. Republicans, and it died. Um, as we were talking to Lita, um, and given the partisanship of of our era, um, sounds like it might die again. Um, given the partisanship, and I and, and I know folks have to get out and vote, and that's something we push all the time. But in my opinion, if if the politicians do not, Democrat, Republican, Independent. Do not come up with some decision as it relates to police close to the, the, the May 25th murder of George Floyd. 
I think it's a slap in the face to all Minnesotans, the state, the nation, and the world. Um, and I cannot, and I understand um, uh, folks have their positions and their platforms, but this is, I guess, this is a question: Where do politicians say, "Guess what? We need to drop our platform right again"? Because if they don't, the voiceless and the black community are going to end up with no, no reform. And as you all think of the uh, lofty positions that you may be elected to, how would you deal with that? Because to some degree, you're going to vote and you got to deal with it. But how would you come back to us, the community? And I think this is one of the failure of politicians. If there is gridlock, come back and talk to us and let us know what's going down. Because we think, oh, yeah, there we go. You know, white folks are not doing nothing for us and so on and so forth. So how would you handle that, particularly if you were um, in this special session and it gets gridlocked again? Okay, that's a great question. I think first and foremost, um, we're looking, uh, this is a big answer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, right yeah. now, the biggest issue that we're facing is they want the governor to end his emergency power. Mm -hmm. So there's a pandemic right now. There's nothing we can do to stop that. It's going to work its way through. How do we work to live with that and to minimize the fatality? There has to be something that the governor can do so that we are more operational. Look at the failed policies right now in Florida and in Texas and Arizona. Their numbers are spiking. And there's even denial on the part of the Florida governor. We do not want to be the next Florida or the next Texas or the next Arizona. It would be terrible for all of our communities. So with that said, right now, that's the one thing that the GOP is trying to stop is the government's powers. And by doing that, they're holding back bonding and they're also holding back police reform. Those things aren't going to happen because they're trying to hold that back. Um, I would be just a vote. I would try to fight to stop something like that. Um, I fear that that's the reality, but I am also an open book, willing to talk about it, willing to be on my social media channels, willing to be vocal. Um, the Senate is going to have a different battle in the House because of how things are shaped right now. And uh, in my opinion, we have to keep Minnesotans the priority. Minnesotans have to be the priority through this pandemic. The governor needs to have those powers. And we need to also make sure that the one thing that the government can do, which is providing funding in bonding for the state of Minnesota, knowing that we're looking at more difficult financial times ahead, yep. that and police reform, police reform first, mm -hmm. are critical. Mm -hmm. And police reform is, I don't even like to call it police reform. This is an elephant that we have to figure out how to bite right. or take care of one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different facets to it. Um, and to figure out how to start to fix it. Mm -hmm. Next. You know, the people of color and indigenous caucus in this bicameral in the House and the Senate worked along with our uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison and our Commissioner of Public Safety, John Harrington, for over a year involving law enforcement, the community input to develop a whole set of policies. They had 
hours and hours of hearing after but this has been in evolution for over a year a set of really solid policies that actually put uh the community um in charge or, or it give community oversight of policing with real rulemaking powers just so that the community can define what does public safety mean to us that's one key element of the reforms that um people were proposing. The other thing was to do away with the immunity the police have such that they are never held accountable. The fact that Derek Chauvin had 18 uh, citations against him and yet has was never taken out, you know, is still licensed, you know, so post-board reforms. So these are really common sense reforms that actually would save lives, you know. So what happened in the Senate was that you know the House had all these hearings, hours and hours of hearings, and after what uh, George Floyd's murder, the community they went back to the community and had more hearings. The Senate refused to even have a hearing on the bills that were put forward by the House. No discussion. And in fact, um, who did um, the majority leader Gazalta go to to talk to? The head of the police union. Mm -hmm. Bob Crowell. Yeah, so it's like, you know, do you really care about the lives of Minnesotans? Do you care that people are actually paying taxes for protection and are being killed? Do we not hold people accountable for the harms? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the Senate said, well, we're not going to listen to your bills. We're going to put forward a couple of small elements. You know, mm -hmm. and and which is kind of window dressing and saying this is this is what we'll do. Mm -hmm. The House actually came back and said, "Listen, we are willing to compromise with you." They said, "No, we're going home. We're done." Mm -hmm. And so I think you know I have tried to make this clear in my emails to people, on my posts on on social media. You know, I've tried to put forward the voices of the Posse Caucus, people of color, and Indigenous Caucus, and the work that they've done. And I think this is the work that I need to do, uh, you know, to say, you know, we we can't have business as usual. Yes, we absolutely need a bonding bill. This is going to put people to work. But we we can't have another, you know, Jamar Clark, Delando Lucille. We can't have another, you know, George Floyd. It's enough. Right. You know, do people? Does everybody's life matter? Black lives matter. Everybody's lives must matter. And we have to do something about this. And we can't have business as usual. But I think that the Senate has to come and mm -hmm. and and compromise. I don't think that they will. Mm -hmm. But we but this is what has to happen. The majority of the, the majority of Americans and the majority of Minnesotans believe that police that we need to be able to hold uh, police accountable to communities, and that's what it's about. Would you all be responsive? Gridlock happens, nothing happens. The things that I think our leaders are learning, and hopefully they're learning, they need to be responsive to our community, particularly the voices we have in the community. And that this is no diss to them. After the aftermath of these tragic events, and I know social media is cool and so on and so forth, but I would hope that our politicians would come back. Let's have a town hall. Blame the people while there's gridlock, because folks are obviously getting. Well, I'm just keeping it real. Just those white folks—they don't care for us. They got our votes, whatever, whatever, and and they don't understand 
it'd be great if our politics is okay. The vote didn't go through gridlock. Let's get a town hall. Let's get a barbershop talk and let people know what's going down. They don't automatically assume. And go back to the riot uh, after George Floyd. No okay in what happened, but that was the voice of the voters. They don't talk to us. They do this. Kill. Let's blow up everything. And I think while we don't have that density up there to react that way, I think folks down here are like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I would hope all leaders would take us. Okay, let's go communicate what happened. It didn't happen like we wanted to. And and I did see some uh, Facebook posts or whatever, and it was finger pointing. And to some degree, there will be that. But hopefully, you all if elected to office would be responsive to our communities. Come right back down here, so be elected, be right, and say, hey, this is what happened. We're working on it. You know what? Vote. And, and it has to be the best mental public service. Yep. For somebody who's doing that job, just to be able to sit down and listen and even take a tongue lashing from someone who's upset with how things have gone. And I don't know that, and that hopefully more politicians and leaders will be willing to do that. Uh, and that's hard, I know. But uh, you're probably one of the first ones that, um, that uh, we heard that. Um, said something about, you know, we got to be able to take the backlash or someone right. um, because oftentimes they want they want to they want someone they can feel comfortable dialoguing and talking to, but they're not the ones that really being affected the most. Right? right. They understand how to navigate situations and stuff like that. But we're talking about the voiceless, right? right. That maybe going to cuss you out, right? Who's really angry, who family who's being affected by right. every single day. And those are the ones who, who will not be in here, even locally, right? right. We, we're trying to find one. We ask our other friend, who is another black person we can talk to, another black person, right? But the accent is that who's comfortable <laughs> that, that we can talk to? You're talking about who's going to make us feel comfortable and talking to, right? But they're not the ones that you're going to run into uh, Every single day, you know, every single day, right? They're the ones that the law enforcement is going to run, the law enforcement is going to run to the marginalized, and the marginalized going to see them and cuss them out, throw bottles and beer cans. I mean, all those types of things. But those are the ones that we keep saying that we really have to. So I commend you for saying, okay, I, I can handle a few cuss words, right. you know, because I understand why you're angry and and why you're mad. Right. So I'm hoping that more politicians can say, you know what. I want to let you get your frustration out. Absolutely. I think the first rule of 2020 is that we all, myself foremost, have to get really comfortable being uncomfortable. Oh, the, the discomfort that we are feeling now, we have been displaced from life as we knew it. And we have to adjust to that reality. And some people might say, well, that's so pessimistic. Well, it's realistic, and we have to be realistic about what's in front of us, how difficult it's going to be, and how long of a struggle it's going to be to fix it. Look at some things that have happened at the state level. How long did it take to even something like so simple, like Sunday liquor sales? <laughs> uh, yeah, something yeah. so silly. And, yeah. But So we have a big fight in front of us to reach what we hope is, is better equity than what we have now. Since you're a doctor, I'm gonna call you doctor. Yeah, no, doctor. I'm a leader. Okay, okay, Alita, I'm called leader. Alita, I know you've been doing something, something I'm talking about for for years. 
and you've been progressive, you know, on, on the front line since the seventies and, and stuff like that. So I know you've been going to places where it's, you know, where most white individual will not, you know, yeah, I lived, I lived with that discomfort <laughs> for decades. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, but you know what, I, what I wanted to say in, in response to what you were saying before too, is that you can't, it's going to be really critical to, um, develop and for me to be able to strengthen the relationships that I already have with our marginalized communities, our, our, our African-American communities, our other communities of color, you know, Somali community, to have these relationships. This is the importance of being here today with you. I mean, I've known Donovan for a long time, but, you know, it, it's it, so that there's communication, there's relationships that you can say, hey, Alita, I, you got to hear this. Because this is how you're accountable, and it's also we can't fix your problems. You know, I know what the majority community thinks, mm. but I need to be able to understand the reality of your communities, and I can only do that by being in conversation with you. I got a question from the community I'm glad to be working with, but grassroots community. I keep going because this, this is yeah, the, like the gold standard of yeah. media. Yeah. Uh, but uh, our, our new system is working pretty well here. And the question is, um, around cultural competence, would you, um, if, if, if employed, and I'm not, not sure what type of staff you can employ, but would you employ marginalized staff or cultural competence staff on any of them? How that works? That was the question. Yes. It's going to be absolutely necessary. Um, yeah, and I don't, I, that's that's a simple standard. You want me to go a little farther than that? Oh, you, you can. You don't have to, but that was definitely from the yeah. To be, you know, completely humble and open and transparent in front of you and everyone else who's watching. Yeah. I grew up in a town that was all white. And I've grown up in circles that are all white. And being aware of what's happening in the world around us in order to start to try to empathize, I have to have people around me who understand because they've lived it. That is great. And that's going to be stuff. critical to how we make decisions and inform policy. Um, I'm learning, trying so hard to learn every day, and it's humbling, and I enjoy it, and it's uncomfortable, and um, there are policies, there are only two kinds of policies. They are either racist or they are anti-racist. And if we're forming those policies, I have to have people around me. That, that's, that's cultural confidence right here. That's totally that Great. Awesome. Well, this question, um, uh, our gentrified city, um, Oh, the, the respondents have absolutely been kind of uh, question. The our city becoming gentrified is 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 subject over and over talking about or how they're going to support. I have well, all eighty percent concluded uh, at our seventy thousand plus per uh, median income mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, town plus everything going up in DMC. And this is no number. I've concluded that we're gentrified. And we're satisfied with that, and the money's going to push us. Um, and efforts toward affordable housing, although we need it, and it's a good thing, are band aid to the bigger issue. Um, 
And what we're going to probably see is the edifice of Rochester being where people come to work and then they live in Sewerville or in Oakland. That's my conjecture because they're just building and building and building. Um, can we really tackle this issue of, because we talk about it so much, and what I'm seeing is I don't see it happening. I, I still see folks, and it's happening around the nation, so let's be, be fair. It's going to be tough for folks to live in Rochester. I mean, middle income to lower income, it's just going to be straight up tough. And we, and, and that to me is a keep it real answer on this issue. Um, can things be done at the state to offset this, or should we just say, hey, Rochester is 70000 above. You have to afford to live here. However, we can get transportation to these places, uh, hubs, or, or how do we answer this question finally? Or um, can we do affordable housing and make this more of a livable city? I think this is a, a, a defining moment in our history as a state. You know, there's widening, widening income inequality and wealth inequality. You know, we cannot address the needs of the vast majority of us without asking the 1% in the, the wealthiest corporations in Minnesota to pay their fair share. So that we can actually invest in, uh, I think, housing as, as infrastructure. I'll never forget hearing Dave Dunn from the HRA in Olmstead County talk about housing should be public infrastructure. You know, just like roads or broadband or something else, because I think to make sure that people actually yeah. have housing, because this this question of tax incremental financing is not getting us there. A few units in luxury apartments buildings is not getting us there. That's one thing. The other thing is when it costs, I think we need on something like almost twenty dollars an hour, forty hours a week, to be able to afford a one bedroom in Rochester. So we need we need to raise our minimum wage to to a living standard minimum wage, but then we also need to make sure that people aren't paying forty percent of their income for health care. Right. Or you know, so there's all these aspects to it. Childcare is 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 a huge issue for working families. There's a lot of families where one person cannot work just because they can't afford the childcare. It's mm -hmm. too expensive. So there are things, if we had, as a state, made a commitment to people, we could, we could make this investment, but it really means, and especially in education, we're, we're down something $4.3 billion since 2003 in terms of investment. This is right. how far we've fallen from our investment in education since 2003, that you know we can't make this up unless we ask those who have profited the most over the last couple of decades to actually pay their fair share. The uh, question I have is that, you know, we talk about defund the poll, you know, uh, police or reform. And, you know, some people say that we should almost do the same thing for the school system. Since it, since it leads to, boy, y'all want to the bottom, you know, since it leads to the prison pipeline, school to prison pipeline. Uh, that's deep. I know you're, you're saying, you know, the schools need more more funding, but it's not equity in, 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 in the schools, right? And the schools, it's, almost, it's still, if it's leading to the pipeline, right? And it's leading to, I mean, all that goes together, right? So what are your thoughts? Okay, can I go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my wife, my wife has been working now uh, diligently with Cradle to Career. 
So right. working with students or kids from the time the child comes out of the womb until in the workforce, working through the process of how we can help kids hit reading goals, hit, you know, all these levels that we want to make sure the kids achieve. And the study has been found that kids who aren't reading at third, third grade level, mm-hmm. by third grade, mm-hmm. the odds of going to prison have increased dramatically mm-hmm. just by that one metric. So education is critical. What's the answer? I don't, as far as allocating funding, funding is critical. How the system works from within, what can we do to reform it? That's open for discussion. The schools have not been funded at a level that increases with inflation or cost of living. They've been held back. And there's also an incredible disparity of the quality of schools in neighborhoods versus other neighborhoods, versus suburbia versus urban. And one model that I like to look at to see where schools are doing so well and how they're growing is a city like Denver when I go back to visit because my friends who are still there, a city that has done really pretty well, certainly not perfect, but it's also very gentrified. Yep. Yep. So putting all of these together with the gentrification and the pillar of affordable housing, you have all the issues that are part of that, that are connected directly to healthcare and education. Education is a person's single most, single greatest tool for their economic autonomy, to be able to stand on their own two feet, getting them into the workforce. What does that, what does that look like without stigma? We talk about someone who gets into the trades, and that's different than someone who goes to get a right. four-year or six-year or yeah. eight-year degree. Yeah. What sort of opportunities are we giving kids in high school to go out and spend some time with somebody in a particular career? I look back at myself when I was 16 or 17, I would have loved the opportunity to go do that. I love working with my hands, mm-hmm. but I also love the science of meteorology. I like to get out and geek out about storms, but giving kids this opportunity to get into the workforce and then also making sure that when they're there, that maybe healthcare is not tied to their job, especially right. in the scene of a pandemic, yeah. and making sure that there's transportation and daycare and opportunity for everyone that mm-hmm. helps to eliminate that level of gentrification because right. people can afford to live, which brings us into a livable wage right. for individuals as well. It's such it's all tied together with affordable housing. Do, do you think we can do that at our if, if, for instance, say the current national administration stays set no after November? Can we do our own thing in, in here in Minnesota to offset what we're talking about? Or are we screwed more or less because <laughs> of federal dollars and incidents? Well, we can we can absolutely, you know, raise Res revenue around taxes, mm-hmm. but I'd like to just go back to this question of, of, of schools and the school to prison pipeline. You know, um, uh, one of the things I brought up early um, was that uh, Rochester is spending over six hundred thousand dollars on um, police liaisons in our schools. Uh, half of it is funded through taxpayers to the police, and half of it is funded, or more than half of it is funded to the school system. 
So, so that's something that you know I think people need to talk about. But I also would like to say that you know I, in terms of trying to figure out this issue, I know that you were talking before, Andre, about the fact that you know our professionals don't stay because this environment is uh, is hostile. I mean, it's a lot of change because Rochester is diversifying. Um, but I think you know the there have been bills put forward in the the Minnesota legislature to increase the numbers of American Indian teachers and uh, indigenous teachers and teachers of color. You know, um, the senators sitting in our district actually sponsored that bill in 17, yeah, but has refused to have any hearings since to actually fund that program or there was, uh, there, was, uh, there was uh, there was there um, was a proposal put forward by I know one of our indigenous legislators mm -hmm. um, and supported in the house to say we don't we're not even going to ask money this year we just want you to make a commitment that we are going to increase the numbers of teachers of color by two percent per year for the next twenty years knowing that it's going to take us to even with just two percent per year get us to uh, a place in twenty forty where teachers look like the students they're teaching. And so there's all these aspects to this program about, you know, helping the parents who are in the schools get certified and mm -hmm. get educated and supported, you know, to give people school loans. And, you know, so there's many components to the TOPI bill, is called, mm -hmm. the Teachers of Color and American Indian okay. Teachers bill, that um, needs funding and support to be able to address this. Um, that's a small, it, it, it may not fix everything, but I think, you know, getting SROs out of schools and then also supporting, you know, that we need teachers in the schools who look like their students. And then the other thing about funding for schools, you know, there's the whole question of community schools or wraparound schools where there's the full range of services in the school. Mm -hmm. you know, that's proven to be, you know, successful and helpful. You know, where you've got mental health professionals in the schools and social workers, and, you know, nurses. So, so, you know, I'm not a politician. You have to know that by now. So, so looking from a cultural lens, how can we have, let me see what we have, ALC, I think Riverside, Public Community Schools, engage in probably JM now, right? None of them is representative of the whole community. So best practice, how can that be best practice and true wraparound services when your partners are no one of color who comes into the school, you're the person you're hired to be on of the community liaison or their proper name or black or person of color. So when we so when we sit back. And we see that on the news and the papers, or we go to the meetings, are saying how great wraparound services are. We're saying we left out. We're saying, we're saying, we're saying. That's what the cultural lens is so important. And saying that despite, so if we can't get teachers, why can't we invest money? And we have, I don't know how many mentorships we have here of color. That you can bring, give them money though. We talk about no excellent because we they ask us all the time, why don't you just volunteer to come in? No volunteer to come in, right? You pay for skill sets. I'm saying, okay, if you want to be, replace the police, whatever you want to do, but
but replace them with people in the community who already work with the kids and bring them into your school, bring them into your school system. And then that will be a, a true community school. But right now, even though having mental having the mental health workers in there, that's great. But how many of them can work with kids of color? Mm -hmm. Right, we talk about we need more money for mental health and stuff, but we really, I just think we really have to have strong black leadership presence right. and, and strong black um, Somalia leadership presence and Hispanic leadership presence, I think, within that school. And then we can lean on them for some some um, some some advice of some things that we you know, we tend to pass things. And then after we pass them, we realize after we put all that money into it. Realize that it didn't work because you haven't bringing us to you bring you don't bring us to the table till after, or you don't allocate the dollars. You said earlier that huge economic gap and stuff like that. What would happen if DMC, Mayo, and them start putting resources to black-led organizations? To black-led organizations, I keep saying the same thing. We keep saying the same thing. Right. Volunteer, get on boards. You asking us how could we get on boards? when and that the jobs that they have, right, don't allow them to get off at a certain time, right? We don't think about that. We you don't think about that. So I think that as a community, we really have to start saying, okay, I think that we have to now stop saying, how do we now go to where they are? Go ahead. I'll just go ahead, so I'll okay. run all that. You know, so go ahead. I'll, I'll say when Randy and I then what I'm going to ask of you is that you bring that we have another session mm -hmm. and it doesn't need to be the barbershop session but that that a real listening session so that we can and, and perhaps with other leadership you know in St. Paul, given that Rochester is a particular case in Minnesota with um, exceptional like disparities mm -hmm. that, you know, the state and being the third largest city that we need to have um, people in the legislature like uh, be in real deep dialogue about yeah. how we address these things. Because you're right, I don't have the answers. I only have the answers that I'm getting when I talk with legislators of color mm -hmm. yeah. and, and what people are, are seeing as solutions, but clearly you're saying it's insufficient. And I won't have all the solutions and Randy won't either for what's happening locally with our school mm -hmm. district. We you know we might not be able to fix that, mm -hmm. but I think having the real dialogue is what's really important. And also critical to being a representative and being a public servant mm -hmm. is that we are bringing with us the voices of the community. Yeah have to be present in what we do. And when we are truly listening and bringing that forward, we are bringing our people first and foremost as our priorities and not a party. And certainly not being a rubber stamp for one group's policy, but understanding the needs of our own communities and forming that policy, knowing that the people come first. And I think we're both in a place where what we are looking at doing is putting the people first. And we'll get you out of here with this question. 2008 was one of the more historic elections, particularly for voiceless folks, African Americans down and vote. Um, obviously, there was a new, um, uh, Hillary Brunkle, Donald Brown, historic turnout. Uh, 
um, as incumbents who, I mean, as, as, as uh, it's going against incumbents. And then this huge uh, call for change, which to which I think we may have the same total of folks turning out to vote. Why should vote folks vote for you rather than your opponent? We're going to have your opponent here next week, Randy. Hopefully, Senator Carl Nelson will be there later. Um, but as we, as folks line up for change, as the young people will have their in, uh, event today at two o'clock, why should they come out and vote for you guys and how important that is? I want to put policies in place that serve our community and that do work for putting an end, and I don't know if we can ever put an end to it, but helping to alleviate the systemic racism, the injustice that we have, to be able to work towards solutions that put people as our number one priority, and to figure out how we are actually working for our entire community to bring up levels and not just serving those who are at the top of earning. We are working for the voiceless. Mm -hmm. And when we all are benefiting from that, our economy is going to thrive more. It will more than likely take more than two weeks for a pandemic to shut down our economy when we do have more security in the system. That's what I want to work for. I want to accomplish in the next four months putting my message forward, letting it speak for itself, and earning those that. That's what I stand for and I'm working for. This is a long job interview, and um, I want people to be able to ask me questions, and I want to be able to answer honestly. Yeah. Well, state elections matter. I'm thinking about how important it is that Attorney General Pete Ellison is our Attorney General. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I was one of the first ones in Rochester to have his lawn sign. I'll have to tell you. And, you know, how important it is we have Governor Waltz and his leadership right now, you know. Um, and so I, you know, think with my 40 years of commitment around racial justice, I'm committed to this community. I've been, I have almost 20 um, endorsements now across the full range of the community, including the labor community, the women's movement, you know, the environmental movement. I'm going to stand up for people. If I get uh, uh, elected and we flip the Minnesota Senate, we will pass substantial, systemic, important, real policing reforms that have been put forward, like I said, by the people of color indigenous caucus. We will be addressing the, the need for health care. You know, we will be able to fund our child care assistance program. We will be able to fund education. And I, I will be in dialogue with you, Andre. <laughs> You know, so these are the, the important things that can be done on a state level. And this is why people have to, you know, vote down the ballot for Randy and myself, because we can we can do so much in Minnesota mm -hmm. that we will not be able to do on a federal level, but we can do it in Minnesota because we have a progressive um, governor and we have a progressive house. We need two seats in the Minnesota Senate. This is one of the seats I'm, I'm running in one of the seats we can flip to mm -hmm. actually makes substantial change. So how can they find you? I mean, you know, um, somebody want to find out more about you? Uh, I mean, you know, out there in Facebook. Wait, your address here? Come on over. He said, come on over, right? He said, come on over. Here's where we're at. Come on over. Where is that? But 
I mean, like, you know, yeah, they got Facebook so pages. I mean, I want to get yeah. your information out there for them. You want to go beyond, you know, yeah. um, this, you know, beyond this, um, no, but this talk this morning. I mean, they want to really want to know more information about yes. you. All. Yeah. Well, I, it's really simple. I just go by my first name because my last name is also complicated, but it's A L E T A. It's Alita for MN Senate. You Google it, you get to my Facebook, oh, excuse me, my website, and I have a very detailed listing of all my policies, including on policing and democracy and equity. I'm at randybrock.mn, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash randybrockforhouse, Instagram, randybrockforhouse, and on Twitter, randybrockmn. And uh, for both of us, I will say find our websites. We're happy to take your donations, too, to help us reach more people. That's right. We'd yeah. be remiss if we didn't ask for a little fun. Right, right. I thought he was a preacher for a moment there. No, but for real, it takes that to run a big campaign in your state. It takes money. So thank you for, you know, putting that in there as well. Thank you. Thank you for yes. this opportunity. Yes. Yes. yes, thank you all for being here. That's Barbara's Talk. Uh, next week we have uh, Representative Nels Pearson and candidate for 25B Republican candidate Kenneth Bush. The Republican response to change. We'll go over that. So thank you for tuning in, Barbershop Talk South Minnesota. We will see you next week. Thank you. Don't forget to vote for Donnie too. Oh, uh, I can say it, but he can't because I'm the only one non-politician <laughs> in this seat. Hold him in, the only brother. Y'all hear me? <laughs> Representation matters. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy your day. Get out at uh, 2 o'clock so the young folks are, are having the politicians out. So. Soldiers Field to Mayo Park. That's right. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. So this went out a little bit so folks can get the rest of your cast on there and all, all this stuff in our podcast. We'll have everybody. I'm going to have to get that. Yeah.